Listen up, everybody. On Tuesday, March 19th, 4.15 Eastern Time, that's 1.15 here local in LA, I'll be hosting a webinar to discuss Cambria's two new ETFs, the Cambria Tactical Yield ETF, ticker TYLD, and the Cambria Micro and Small Cap Shareholder Yield ETF, ticker MYLD. Head over to Cambria's Twitter and LinkedIn pages to find the registration link. Once again, that's March 19th at 4.15 Eastern Time. Look forward to seeing you. Carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risk factors, charges, and expenses before investing. This and other information can be found by visiting our website at www.cambryfunds.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing or sending money. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of capital. The Cambry ETFs are distributed by Alps Distributors, Inc., member FINRA, FINRA. Welcome to the MedFavor Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. We got a great show for you today as the year is winding down. Our guest is joining us from London Town. He's the chief global investment strategist at Ned Davis Research, and he's been there since 1986. He directs NDR's global asset allocation services, develops strategy, major investment themes, and establishes Ned Davis's weightings for global asset allocation. He's also the author of The Research Driven Investor. In today's episode, we dive into their whole research process at Ned Davis. We explore Tim's current base case for U.S. stocks, still being a secular bull market, and what scenarios are probabilistic going forward, including what conditions we'll need to see for an environment of double-digit annualized returns. We also cover commodities, and in particular gold, an area of interest for the NDR team right now. We also discuss some themes of worry among institutional investors and the insight that is in an environment of capital preservation with a high level of risk aversion. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. It's always exciting when YChart releases a new enhancement to the platform, and just recently they launched the new Attribution Analysis Tool. It can help you see what's driving a portfolio's performance displayed with quick-hitting and easy-to-understand heat map and bar chart views. You can use this for funds, ETFs, and model portfolios and see a quick screenshot of the top eight contributors and detractors over any time period, or look at the full attribution table. I've used it to check out some of the strategies and love how easy it is to use. For current YChart users, you're likely already familiar with the power of their report builder and proposal generation offerings. Now you can integrate attribution tables and visuals into your proposals to help tailor the investment story that resonates with your clients. Check out this new feature for yourself and get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial by going to ycharts.com slash meb dash Faber or just click the link in the show notes for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Tim Hayes. Welcome to the show, Tim Hayes. Thanks a lot, man. Tim, I'm really excited to have you today. We've been harassing you for a long time to get on the show and you're joining us from London. What's the mood over in the UK? You've been there for a few years now. What's what's going on over there? Well, it's kind of funny. I mean, I got here right around, right before Brexit. And then the Brexit vote, it seemed like things were going to be pretty clear cut. But four years later, and nothing is any more certain than it was when they did the votes. 
it's just an air of uncertainty. And you've given up trying to predict the outcome because there's so many possibilities. So I just think it's one sort of just uncertainty, really. Yeah, well, it was funny because I was there last spring and was laughing. I was in a pub and all my local Brit friends were just like, at this point, just like total, just throwing their hands up in the air. And like, no one could explain to me. I'm like, what's the actual, I don't even care like what's going to happen, but like, what's the path to like even coming to a decision? And it was just like, it was funny. Anyway, look, I've known you for a long time. Why don't you tell the listeners who aren't familiar, most should be, a little bit about the company and then we'll dive deep into all things markets. Ned Davis Research was of course, founded by Ned Davis, whose name is on the door back in 1980. And the approach was really to use more of a quantitative approach or to actually use models, which at the time was, was something completely new, to try to establish sort of the weight of the evidence. What's the data telling us about where the markets are going? Over the years, the company has developed a pretty strong following, institutional following globally. And I interact with a lot of our clients in Europe and Asia from over here in London and also back in the U.S. Our philosophy is to be objective, disciplined, risk-averse, and flexible, and really respond to what the data is telling us and not get too caught up in predict and forecast where things are going because, as we know, that's a pretty uh, unreliable strategy for investing. I wrote the book Research Driven Investor, which is really about using good research to underpin your investment decisions. Ned had the book called Being Right or Making Money, which the point there is that we'd all like to be right all the time. But when it gets down to it, we want to make sure we put our money in the right place and don't make a big mistake. A lot of what it's about is risk management and making the right decisions. By the way, Tim, you published this book about 20 years ago, and it's about time, I think, for an update. The publisher talked you into that yet? Now that it's uh, near the end of the decade, we we going to get you to do an update to this puppy? Yeah, I definitely need to do an update. I just, as always, it's about finding the time. But it was interesting. I wrote it. It basically went to the press in, I think it was March of 2000, right before the tech blow up. And one of the pages in there, uh, we had a focus list at the time, which was sort of generated by really more momentum. Almost all the stocks on there were internet stocks. And like a month later, they all started coming off the list because we got into the, the tech bubble started to burst. So it was an interesting time. And of course, since then, we've been through the whole secular bear market, the 0709 global financial crisis, and then the big recovery since then. So certainly there's a lot more to talk about. I think it's something I, I may in fact want to do in, in, in the not too distant future. One, because I love because in the intro, you were like, the days of easy stock market profits are over. And I feel like we could, you could make that argument again today. We come full circle at some point. But also, you know, the millennials that buy your book, they're going to get it and see a CD on the cover and be like, I don't, I don't even know what this is. What are these things uh, on the cover of the book? Yeah, exactly. Let's talk a little bit about y'all's research process. And we'll get into some market outlook and things after. But talk a, bit, a little bit about how you guys go about it. Most people self-identify, whether it's Warren Buffett saying, I'm a value guy. Maybe some people say, no, 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 I'm pure technician. And other people, you know, are based on fundamentals. How do you guys kind of go about the whole process, utilize probably more data inputs than anybody on the planet? Talk to us a little bit about y'all's framework for how to think about the world. Okay. Well, I mean, for lack of a better term, we use what we sometimes can call a 360 approach, which essentially you can think about it in two ways. Half of the challenge is understanding where the market is going, you know, what the data, you know, what is the market doing right now? And, and as simple as that sounds, it, you really have to 
dig under the surface and look at the breadth of the market and look at a lot of indicators and tell you how healthy is advance or you know whether it's it's divergent or led only by a few stocks. So that's pretty much half of it is understanding is sort of the the tape as we you know another term we you know we don't use anymore but based on the old ticker tape. But the point is how healthy is the actual trend of the market. So another way of of describing it is remaining uh, trend sensitive. And so to do that, we want to build indicators uh, based on on historical relationships and tendencies. So example, 20 times over the past 30 years, um, the indicator's gotten to this level. And after that's happened, the market has continued higher. Things like deviation from trend, like one moving average versus another, or new highs in the market, uh, momentum, which basically a moving rate of change. Those price-based indicators, that's about half of the process. And how that can really help you is in an environment like 2007, 2009, when if you relied on non-price indicators, you could very well have gotten caught on the wrong side of that move. So that's that's half of it. So basically, the internals is, is another way of describing it. Tell us what the market is doing, the sort of more technical approach to it. And then the other half is sort of the non-price indicators, what we call the external factors. And this can include everything from sentiment in the market, valuations. It includes the macro environment, liquidity, economic momentum, earnings momentum, anything that's not purely based on price that can help us, helps confirm what the internals have already been telling us. And what will happen often and is that the price-based indicators will get favorable and and we don't always understand why until we start to get the confirmation from the fundamental indicators. And, and in fact, the way our, uh, our models work is that half is the internal factors. And then the more confirmation we get from the fundamentals, then the more bullish the picture and that you sort of have that broad-based advance going on that's explained by conditions that are reflected by the non-price indicators, by the fundamental indicators. And again, with all of these things, like we'll take economic data and do the same approaches that we take with the uh, internal data. At what point, for example, was the PMI, Purchase Manager Index, momentum get to a certain level? At what point does that become bullish for the market or bearish for the market? And what has the historical tendency been? What's the annualized return been in different, as we often call them, modes? Really, the challenge is to find good, reliable indicators and then if you can put good, reliable indicators together, then the composite of those indicators should give you a good reading on sort of that, the weight of the evidence, whether the glass is half full or, or half empty and where things are going. So that's pretty much the approach, very data-driven. And what that does is it allows you to be flexible. I can be ragingly bullish and then Two weeks later, the data starts changing and you just have to go with the data and say, okay, uh, things worked out. Things are working out differently than they were looking two weeks ago. So we need to respond and and change our allocation, change our position. So that's pretty much, I'd say, the approach behind it. I think you hit on a pretty important point, which is so many investors get stuck in the belief system where they have a position or they have a worldview that, and, and you're seeing this a lot with politics and everything else today of these echo chambers, is that they only search for confirming evidence. I don't care if you're a Tesla bull or bear, whatever it may be, same thing with the economy and positions. But the, the reality for many things is you should be looking for evidence that really works against your view or at least be open to it because as things change, 
the worst thing could happen is just just staying <laughs> staying stuck in your worldview when the when the when everything is flashing red against you. So so as we wind down the year and the decade, as you're toasting a pint in the UK and or sipping champagne on, on December thirty first, twenty nineteen, about to turn the page on the twenty twenties. Uh, maybe talk to us a little bit about. We could probably start with the economy, the way uh, the, the world economy looks today, and, and with a nod towards the U.S. as well. And then we'll start to get into a little more market outlook. But how things? Are things romping? Things slowing? What's the, what's, how's, the, how's the world look today? The interesting thing is that, you know, it, it's sort of you have this back and forth. You know, one week things are looking better and the next they aren't. I think what's sort of defined this year has been one where you've had these really sort of sentiment-driven moves where – there's talk of a trade deal and then the market rallies and then we learn there actually wasn't a deal. There's not going to be a deal. The market comes off. And, but when it gets down to it, it's really you've had this. The PMI data has really described this environment of uncertainty and lack of confidence that is from the business side that has really been defining the economic environment. And so you have this dichotomy where the manufacturing and, and business data is weakening and yet you still have the consumer hanging on, the employment data remaining favorable. And the question has been, will the manufacturing slow down and then the business confidence run its course now that we've had sort of a renewed phase of global accommodation? Or is it really just a matter of the U.S. finally giving out as businesses start to look at their profit margins are starting to be affected? This leads to employment numbers start to be affected. The wage growth starts to be affected. And then the U.S. follows suit. And what we find is if the U.S. is in a recession within a global slowdown, then that prolongs everything. In fact, your annualized return is negative, about negative 5% when you've had a U.S. recession and a global slowdown, whereas when you have just a global slowdown, which defines the environment we've been in since early last year, the market's actually up about 2% per annum. So I think it, we're sort of at a point now, a kind of a crucial turning point here at the end of the year is that there are some signs that the global manufacturing picture may be starting to turn out better. And certainly if there is going to be a trade deal that has any kind of significance, that would support that. There's also still negative momentum on a lot of the manufacturing data in the U.S. And that could catch up to the U.S. consumer and conceivably bring us into a recession. So the way I'm thinking about it, we could very well have a tactical opportunity here whether or not that's going to be a lasting recovery remains to be seen. If, in fact, we're going to avoid U.S. recession, the global economy is going to come back, then actually we could already be at the beginning of a pretty good sustainable recovery in the markets ahead of our recovery next year. But I just think it's a little bit too early here in early November 2019 to really know whether we can um, toast a glass of champagne or start to get ready for things to get a lot worse next year. As we reflect back, the U.S. has really been the shining night of this past decade of the U.S. stock market, just been gangbusters, a big outlier performer versus most of the rest of the world. And I think, I may be wrong, but this may be one of the first decades, if not the first decade, without a recession in the U.S., if we, if we make it through the end of the year. What, what do you think has been the driving force behind that? Is it central banks? Is it something else? Is the U.S. just that much more competitive? What's your worldview looking back on why things have been so much better here? You've had accommodation everywhere globally. It's been more really the consumer that's been a stronger force 
in propelling the U.S. And earnings have been coming through for the U.S. companies. And in fact, we define this as a global bull market that really started with the lows in 2009, a secular bull market globally. So by definition, all the markets, major markets around the world are participating. But you're right, the U.S. has outperformed since 2009. And that was also the case in the last secular bull market, which went from 1982 to 2000. Yeah, I think it, it gets pretty much down to the U.S. consumer being such a big part of this economy. And whereas it's not as much a role to such an extent, say, in Europe or in Japan to the other major regions, equity market regions. As we shift from a look back to a look forward, start to walk me through market outlook some of these market trends. What's uh, Ned Davis's world and Tim's worldview on, and you can start wherever you like, but I figured we'd start with US stocks. What's the world look like going forward? The base case is we're still in the same secular bull market that we've been in since 2009. If we go back to 07, in fact, go all the way back to 2000, what started in 2000 with the bubble of 2000, it was a, really about a deleveraging process that took different forms. And it was really started with the internet bubble and the tech bubble of 2000, it sort of was transferred over to the subprime and housing bubble that led us into the global financial crisis of 07, 09, which really finally took care of the deleveraging that had to, to finally bring that secular bear market to an end. And during that secular bear market, the S&P was down 6% per annum. So over a period of almost 10 years, the market was losing money at a pretty consistent rate. We get to 2009, you have what I call a policy capitulation, and all the central banks kind of finally get on the same page with trying to reflate the global economy. And they succeeded. Uh, From that point in time, the global economy began to gain traction in the stock market. This underpinned the, the rallies. We had a couple of what I call cooling phases during this reflation trend. And thinking about reflation as a gradual warming up of economic conditions, we had a cool off in. 2011, 2015, and then 2018. But coming out of each of those, what happens is it it sort of reestablishes that global policy that accommodate a monetary policy. And that's what we've been seeing again over the last year, the Fed getting back to easing again, a lot of other central banks getting back to easing. And then what that does is just sort of reasserts that same secular trend. And then, you know, you're back into the average cyclical bull within a secular bull last about two and a half years and takes the market up 77%. So I think there's going to be a good opportunity. The question is, it's one sort of, you know, has it started yet or are we going to go up and come back down? We've had one aspect of a secular bull is that when you've had a secular bull market, and I mentioned this before with global slowdowns and U.S. recessions, and there have been, we had in the 1970s, there was two, one that started in 1970, 70. 375. And then in the early 1980s, you had one in 1980, those back-to-back recessions. And finally, we got to 82, which was the beginning of a new secular bull market. You've had four of these really bad economic periods. And then and the same thing happened. 2001 was another U.S. recession within a global slowdown. And then the global financial crisis, you know, that was the big one. But there's been one case where you actually had a global slowdown and a U.S. recession within a secular bull. And that was back in in the early 1990s. So that's sort of the worst case, I think, scenario that if the U.S. goes into a recession, it would be more of a shallow 
recession like it was then, and it sort of prolonged the global slowdown. The market really made no progress from 89 until 94. Or if we're not going to have a U.S. recession, then things start to look more like they did in around 93, 94, which eventually is when the market broke out and started that big run up in the 1990s. So either way, when we do finally have that confirmation that actually the global economy is turning around and the U.S. is either coming out of a recession or not going into one, what we'll start to see is bond yields will start to move higher, stocks will move higher with them. Right now, we still have a positive correlation between bond yields and stock prices, which I think is best explained by the market viewing rising bond yields as a sign of economic growth, not as a negative sign of inflation. In fact, inflation is one of the ingredients that the markets want to see here. So I see that sort of being what gets us back into an environment of those double-digit annualized returns again, which we haven't seen the market basically being flat over the last year. But then the question will become over the next several years, when does actually reflation start evolving into inflation that becomes a negative threat to the markets? And that we would see when the correlation, remembering that the market inflation expectations will be reflected in rising bond yields. And at some point in the future, the stock market will start to see that not as positive, but as negative. And then if that correlation then start turns negative, in other words, the rising bond yields are met with falling stock prices. And if by then the stock market has gotten a lot more overvalued, then the stock market's in a much worse position. But that's clearly not the, the risk right now with inflation back down the very low levels in the U.S. and globally, and interest rates about as low as they can go. Maybe go a little deeper on that while we're on the topic of interest rates and bonds. I mean, I think a lot of people probably have been surprised by the amount, first of any, but also the amount of negative yielding sovereigns and even some corporates around the world. Talk to us a little bit about kind of how you guys see that over at Net Davis. I mean, I was kind of smiling as you were talking about inflation and bond yields going up because so many of them have been going south. Talk to us a little bit about how you guys think about and any predictions on kind of how that eventually resolves any general thoughts. One way I think about that is when we talk about secular trends again, is that equities have been in a, in a secular bull market since 2009. Bonds have been in a secular bull market since the early 1980s. So, so if you have a 40-year bull market, like that, that eventually leads to is over yeah, excessive complacency, excessive optimism. And even the last year, you've had about 240 billion flow into bonds, or you've had about 230 billion flow out of equities. This is based on ETFs and mutual fund flows. So at a time when you have negative yielding bonds. So the point is, this is just a sign that people are putting money in bonds because it's just this perceived lack of risk. The same kind of thing we heard back at the end of the 90s about tech stocks. You would just throw your money into tech stocks and you'll be fine. The world is different now. You're, they're never going to go down. You're never going to lose money. Same thing with the bonds. Is I think the risk is that we're getting very late in the secular game here and that at some point, this is a sign of extreme overvaluation. And when it finally does turn, especially since there's such a lack of liquidity in the bond market, and so much exposure, if there's from these very low levels, it won't take much of a yield rise for people to realize they're losing money. And when people realize they're losing money in the area they thought was safe, that has the potential to create a stampede and for people to you know head for the exits pretty quickly. So I think that's the real risk in the bond market. 
it doesn't have to happen right away. We could just sort of stay at these low levels for a lot longer. In fact, I think that would be a probably the, the the healthier environment for equities if you see see yields maybe back up gradually, but they don't really start to spike higher. Then you could still have a, a continuation of the current environment with bond yields moving gradually higher and stocks uh, outperforming bonds on the upside. But I think that it is uh, on the negative yields. I just think it's a sign of just this extreme one-sided thinking about bonds that, that is really represents a longer-term risk and probably not sustainable. You put your hat on. Do we, have, do we ever see negative government bonds in the U.S.? I think that gets back to that question I was, I was addressing earlier. If the U.S. goes into a recession, last week's number on the employment turns out to be as good as it's going to get. And we do start to see the U.S. gradually move closer to moving into recession. Yeah, I think that should definitely be considered as a possibility. And it's happened everywhere else where economies have been sort of leading the U.S. And I wouldn't rule that out at all. That could certainly make things more difficult, sort of prolong this environment we're in right now. You just gave all my retirees listening a heart attack. Now talk to me about stocks. So U.S. stocks, how uh, how do they look going into the end of the year? We've had a pretty significant run or most indicators flashing green, yellow, red, something else? Yeah, I mean, what, what, what you've tried to do, I mean, this is kind of on a shorter term basis, try to understand, I mentioned earlier, I mentioned breadth of the market, how much participation, how healthy is the advance, and, and then think about the sentiment. Has the market gone too far too fast? Is maybe gotten too complacent. Our sentiment indicators have gotten to levels where they were back in April and July. Those are the last two times we had a rally. This one has been a better rally in the sense that we've broken above the July highs. We're starting to see some better breadth. The number of stocks and markets making new highs has been expanding. Um, things are starting to look a little bit better from an internal standpoint, but the sentiment has been stretched. So the other benefit. Usually this time of year, seasonal influences get favorable. But I, a big caveat was, remember what happened last year. The year-end rally didn't happen until like the last week of the year. So you have to be careful about season, seasonal tendencies. But things are looking a little bit better, but I'm not ready to say we're off the races. I think there's still a lot of divergences. If you look at the percentage of stocks globally and in the U.S. above their 50-day moving averages, 200-day moving averages. And also do you can do the same thing with markets globally. And it's just it still shows a pattern of lower highs, a non-confirmation. The top 10 stocks globally, and you can see the same thing in the, in the S&P 500, but globally the top 10 stocks account for 12% of the market cap which is about as high as we've seen since going back to the tech bubble in 2000. And that means we're really dependent on those FANG stocks. And the, and the top 10 stocks globally, most of those are U.S. tech-related stocks, all the familiar names. And so the benefit would be if you can get some of the breadth indicators to really confirm. Um, I look at, for example, the equal-weighted all-country world index. You can do the same thing with the equal-weighted S&P 500 or other measures that sort of take out the influence of those big stocks, you know, that will be a sign that more and more stocks are anticipating that the economic growth will be there and that will support earnings going forward. And then that will justify the valuations. But we're not we're not at that point yet. So I'm still kind of cautious here because of the sentiment getting stretched and having not had that really significant breadth confirmation 
be a little cautious. But things do look a little bit better than they, than they did, say, in August. You mentioned sentiment a few times. How do you guys think about sentiment? Because it tends to be, for a lot of people, a somewhat squishy topic. Are there ways that you guys conduct your own work? Do you use outside sentiment? gauges or do you just read business week covers are you looking on instagram what's the way you guys gauge sentiment we use different providers of sentiment and thing about sentiment too is that some indicators have worked better in the past than they they do currently things like put call ratios and but you try to use different outside services to get sort of a a consistent or composite picture of the sentiment one service that, that I use a lot is the DSI, the Daily Sentiment Index. It's a little shorter term, but what I like about that, it's a scale of zero to 100. And you can, uh, it's a survey of futures traders, and you can, you can compare the sentiment in the U.S. to the sentiment in another market, and you can do the same thing with currencies and other things. So, but basically, the concept is when you get really a high levels of sentiment, then the, you know high levels of optimism, that suggests, well... If people are saying they're that optimistic, they probably already bought. So, um, you know, who's left to really buy at that point? And then what you need to be concerned about is that you don't want to sell necessarily when the sentiment gets high, but you want to see if you get to extreme sentiment, that's a warning. And then when the sentiment reverses, that's a sign that the momentum is starting to move in in the other direction, that those people who had bought are, are getting out. So then you want to do the same thing in the other direction, watch the sentiment until it gets to extreme pessimism levels and then start to think contrarian. But you don't want to buy on the high pessimism and panic because we saw, for example, in 2008, that wouldn't have really been a very good idea because the market was going to do a lot worse before it finally bottomed and then reversed. So you want to see the sentiment reach a bottom and reverse. And then you turn your attention to the breadth indicators and some of the indicators I was talking about to say, well, now this is this advance is broadening out and um, we've left behind us, the extreme and pessimism, and now sort of new confidence is going to drive the market higher. So again, the way to think about sentiment is go with it till it reaches an extreme and then starts to go in the other direction and then use that as your as your signal. My favorite example I love giving, and this is super long-term, and I don't know how particularly useful it is as a trading signal, but it's fun to look back upon it, was the AAI sentiment, whether it's either the bullish, bearish, or percent allocated stocks, bonds, cash, and, and the most most bullish people have ever been in the history of the survey going back to the 80s was <laughs> December 1999. And the most bearish they were was in March 2009. So at the turning points, the big ones, it's, it's funny to see just how accurate it can be in the, in the opposite direction. So looking at sort of, you know, you mentioned a few times breadth, and I think it's an interesting topic because each index or market is nothing more than a a composite of underlying stocks and securities. And depending how you chop them up, whether it's value or growth, whether it's size, like large cap, small cap, whether it's sectors, they can have a very different composition, but also a very different composition in time. You referenced 2000, where it was my favorite bubble. I was still in graduating college at the time, where you had these massive internet and tech market cap, just crazy weighted bubble, but a lot of other smaller stocks weren't too bad, including value. Is there anything you can tease out from the data in 2019 about whether it's size or sectors or areas that look particularly favorable or unfavorable in in the US? Well, you know, what I do with that too is I have a concept that I we hear often hear about risk on versus risk off. So 
A number of years ago, we tried to kind of do this a little more systematically. And so we went back and identified different sectors, different indexes, also even different asset classes, bonds and and, and currencies that are have positive, stable positive correlations with the market. And then we did the same thing on the other side of the coin with inverse correlators. So during a healthy market, if the market's rallying on the idea that the economy is going to come back, these what we call risk on proxies should be outperforming the defensive risk off proxies. So on the risk on side of the coin, we find that the relative strength of the tech sector is the most positive correlating sector. So you'd expect that if you're in we see this repeatedly when the market's really ready to take off, the tech's going to lead the way higher. Um, we also find that other the cyclical consumer ratios, so composite of cyclical stocks, consumer stocks, will tend to be risk on. And then outside of the market, high yield bond prices, they have the most positive correlation. So high yield bonds tend to be sort of an equity proxy, crude oil is a part of our risk on index, and, and then a, a, a commodity sensitive currency is the South African Rand. And then on the risk off side of the coin, we have Japanese yen, Swiss franc, long-term treasury bond prices, and then two sectors that have really stable inverse correlations. And those are the utilities and the consumer staples. So I find that when you're in a healthier environment, you just see utilities, consumer staples holding up well. And actually that's been sort of the theme over the last year, especially with utilities. That's a sign that the market has sort of a risk off leaning. But when you see Oh, risk on. So what we can do is take these risk on proxies and put them into an index and do the same thing with the risk off proxies and compare them. So it's what I call our risk on risk off ratio or row row ratio. And then we can look to see if that ratio is confirming what the major indexes are doing. And that's something relevant right now because the ratio has not confirmed. It has been going up, but I want to see that break out and the upside. And then you see sectors like tech start to and more cyclical sectors like the industrials, more commodity sectors, consumer discretionary, energy materials doing well. And then the defensive sectors like utilities and staples starting to lag. If you see that in the, together with a broadening out the market, according to a lot of the breadth indicators, where you, know, you basically treat all stocks and sectors the same, that's a good sign. And the other thing we can do with this is I look at the percentage of risk on indices that are above their... Um, 50-day and 200-day moving averages, and I do the same thing with the risk-offs, and then you compare them, so you get a diffusion index. And then, you know, the 50-day version recently has gotten favorable. The 200-day hasn't confirmed. So there's a lot you can do with sort of trying to understand what it is that's outperforming and underperforming to give you a sense of whether the market is is really moving into a risk-on phase, which probably has something to do with where the economy is going and therefore where earnings are going, or if maybe it's a less sustainable move that the risk where you still have risk off sort of overriding the uh, relative performance. So that's kind of how I I think about it. It's interesting this year too, because you've seen certain dispersion in markets. I mean, it's funny to look back on what happens to be in sort of the news flow and geopolitical discussion when it comes to investing in markets. I mean, a few years ago, only thing that anyone could talk about was Greece and then Russia. And I think Greek stock market went down like 80 or 90%. But very quietly, it's up, I think, almost 40% this year, maybe 50. It's getting up there. And Russia's having a good year too. But also, the one that I look back on pre-financial crisis that you alluded to, 
as an asset class that I'd like to explore now too, is also commodities. And that was one that every investment, endowment, institution, individual advisor in the mid-2000s was herding into as an asset class that many had not had before. And then fast forward 10 years later, everyone's been puking it out over the last few years. I don't know anyone that still likes commodities anymore, but talk to me a little bit about your perspective on shiny metal, other commodities, the the dark oil, everything else. What uh, Any thoughts on commodities in general? That's exactly right. What you said is that we, we actually had what's called, um, what I used to call the China-driven commodity demand theme that really sort of sort of started around the early 2000s. And, and from that point on, really from 2000 to the financial crisis, and then it had a, a sort of a final run-up in 2010. But you saw China and emerging market relative strength, material sector, commodities, Latin America, energy, crude oil, all these things would move together. And then it all kind of turned around again once you got to the end of that move in 2011, 2012. You know, I think part of it was a lot of liquidity went back into, into the stock market as well as the bond market. And I mentioned commodities are generally risk on. So, and the market's been pretty much on the defensive for the past year and crude oil certainly has not been going anywhere. But if we're going to move back into a better economic environment, I think that would help commodities. But the one area that we've really liked, and I went bullish at the beginning of the year when we went to overweight on bonds on the same day we went bullish on gold. And what happens with gold is gold participated in the China-driven commodity demand theme, and then it came back down. But more recently, gold's kind of taken on, sort of separated from the other commodities because it's taken on sort of its store of value role. Also, it's helped by the fact that you have negative real interest rates and that gold, you know, it's often said when rates are rising, gold doesn't pay pay interest. So it's at a competitive uh, disadvantage. Well, that's not the case if you have zero or negative interest rates. So negative real rates in particular have been helpful to gold, but also in this sort of defensive environment, gold's benefited from its tendency actually to outperform during bear markets. The past eight global bear markets, gold's been up about 5% on average, and it's been up every time. So, and, and the other element of gold is that when you have a trade war that sort of, we started hearing in the middle of the year talk about a currency wars, and well, Nobody really wins a currency war because everybody's trying to weaken their currency. So no currency actually benefits except for gold because you're not going to have that ability to to weaken it through central bank policy. So gold's an area that I, I think continues to look very good. Also, it does not look extended relative to its own history or relative to other asset classes, unlike in 1980. I think we're quite likely going to see gold continue to work higher and, until we get into much more threatening interest rate environment. And especially with inflation complacency the way it is, I think you'll probably see real rates remain very low for quite a while longer. And that should help gold probably go back and make new highs over the next couple of years. Gold is interesting because you you just hinted at the end, this effect of real interest rates, which at least historically has been a pretty strong indicator of gold outperformance. And you would think with the rates around the world that gold would be just booming relative to a lot of a lot of these negative yielding sovereigns. So I think it makes a lot of sense in that in that perspective. There was a lot of talk briefly this summer about the yield curve 
and how that affects various investments. Is that something you guys have been talking much about? I'm, I imagine you got a bunch of client requests probably midsummer on on some of that topic. That's right. The, the yield curve, I mean, not only, and it was like a lot of these trends, and you, you mentioned that with the, with the rates, but you know, they are global in magnitude, and the yield curve had a lot of attention given to the negative economic implications of an inverted yield curve. And the fact that it inverted the most inverted curve since 1991, and I mentioned that period earlier, I mean, the curve back then started to steepen because that finally drove, when we started to see signs of that recession, the Fed became very aggressive with the rate cuts. And then as a result, that started to steepen the curve. But yeah, I, I think that's been one of the concerns. And some people say, well, it doesn't matter as much because it's caused by the long end coming down rather than the short end going up, which is sort of the more traditional way in an inflationary environment, you see the yield curve flatten and turn inverted because short rates are moving higher. But I think what that speaks to is if the bond market is the, sort of that proxy for economic growth, it really is picking up the concerns uh, for the global economy. And you really need to have the a long end start to pick up to think, okay, maybe the economy is stabilizing, is looking better. So that has implications for certain, you know, for the financials in particular. Financials are actually a pretty good cyclical sector to pay attention to. And if the yield curve, it also steepening helps the margins of the banks in particular, but it's also a sign of an economic recovery. So I think the yield curve is, is definitely something to keep paying attention to. And it just recently, it started to steepen again. Still too soon to know whether this is temporary or whether this is the beginning of a of a more sustained move. But yes, I, I'd say um, I would I would definitely pay attention to to it as an indicator. I'm going to ask you some shorter form questions. You don't have to answer them shorter form, but they're sort of a shorter form in my mind. As we've kind of w- worked our way around the world, we didn't get into crypto. So I figured that'd be a 2020 plus discussion. You spend a lot of time talking to the big money institutions, uh, the real what we call the real money, these guys that have foundations, pension funds, endowments, family offices that manage really significant wealth and also advisors too. As we kind of go into 2020, what is on everyone's mind? And you can answer this one of two ways, either what are all of these institutions worried about or what should they be worried about as kind of as, as we go into the end of the year? The term I think describing is capital preservation and also the fact that the industry itself is being threatened. I think um, there's a pretty high level of risk aversion, I would say. And I think there's a lot of awareness of the role of the algos here with some of these rallies when how fast they went, for example, in the January run up and how that's become more of a trader's market as opposed to an investor's market. And I think we see that in the I mentioned earlier about the flows of the market, how you've had a $240 billion inflow into bonds and then a $230 billion outflow from equities, and you don't have any significant money coming back into equities. So, yeah, I'd say the general mindset is one of let's play it defensively. Let's not overcommit and lose money here. But as I mentioned earlier, I think the the risk there is that um, if there's an accident ahead of us in the bond market, it may may cause a lot of damage before institutions are willing to adjust for it. I, I would say one other thing, though, I have heard more interest in gold, as we were discussing earlier, from institutions. You know, it takes time for pension funds to actually go through the process of adding gold to their portfolios. But there is sort of awareness that there's there hasn't been much return out there in anything over the last year. 
whereas gold's actually been up double digits. But I think that's also reflects the idea that gold is that sort of that store of value. And when you start to get worried about where things are going and the global economy slowing and the U.S. potentially going into recession, you're going to play it safe. So that I think is generally the mindset that I've taken away from um, talking to clients. You're starting to see the numbers come down in the U.S., but the expectations certainly of many of these plans that used to always hover around 8%. They've started to notch down a little bit, but in a world of sub two, <laughs> sub one, zero interest rates, you start to see some effects. And the biggest one that you continually see in the US, I think, is this stampeding into private equity as the only potential savior, which in my prediction is going to be the big problem of the next decade, where, where I think private equity is, is going to be a low performer relative to expectations because you guys are talking about expectations i think that's the big the big daddy that's gonna muck up all these pension funds what is something that and this may take a second for you to think about so take your time but i talk a lot about investment either concepts or just general beliefs that i hold that the vast majority of our profession doesn't when i tweeted out about 10 the other day are there any beliefs that you hold or that you think are important that at least half, preferably 90%, <laughs> but but at least half of you think your investor contemporaries don't agree with anything come to mind? I have an answer. I don't know whether or not you can agree or disagree, but a simple concept is that relationships change. As much as we look at history and try to understand how history repeats itself, correlations can completely flip and change. And if that happens, if relationships between data and markets or between two markets, I, I always use the example of the stock market and the bond market. It used to be when bond yields were going up, the stock market would go down. That was back in the inflationary 1970s in particular. And that persisted throughout the 80s when there were signs of inflation, the market remembered how damaging the 1970s were when there was what we used to hear, you know, a whiff of inflation and then bond yields would go up and the stock market would go down. And finally, you know, that, that continued until we got to the bubble of 2000 and we started the whole deflationary wave, which is when actually the worry was not inflation, it was deflation. And then the correlation completely flipped. And then by then it was bond yields going down was considered a bad thing because it was a sign of deflation and bond yields going up is seen as a good thing and sign of growth. And so the stock market rallies on that. So what I think it means is that we have to be aware of and constantly watch what might possibly be changing in the current environment, what relationship might be breaking down, what data might no longer be giving us the same message it did before. And that's, I think, a big challenge of doing research and understanding where the markets are going is knowing what is giving us the most useful information. I don't know if you can necessarily disagree with that, but I think it's something that I hear a lot of people say, you know, especially managers will say, yeah, this is, I look at these three things. I look at this thing and then I look at that and I look at that. And that's how they, that's how they come to their conclusions in the markets. Well, we sometimes need to evolve that especially if it's a small list of conditions we're looking for or influences we're looking for, because they may lose the relevance. I think that's really important. You mentioned two topics that I think is really interesting. One, we used to always joke that markets are always different and will continue to surprise us. And people love writing 
advisors love writing it. It's okay. We've seen this before. This is fully within expectations, but we always joke that what they should be writing half the time is it's okay. We've never seen this before. And, you know, that that's to be expected. And I think the challenge for a lot of people is trying to decide, is this something that this time really different, or is this an actual structural change? The one we talk a lot about going back years ago was a good example would have been how companies started distributing cash via buybacks instead of just dividends. I mean, that was a very real structural change that happened over the past few decades. And the one that I think could be a big surprise for people that most people believe is in you, we started this discussion with this, which was the correlation of stocks and bonds is not necessarily stable. And in a world where you have very low yielding bonds, most of the time, the batting average of bonds, diversifying stocks in the bad months or bear markets is, is pretty good, but it's not always. And I think that could be a scenario, not guaranteed, but where in the future at some point, <laughs> if we ever have another bear market, the bonds may not help. And that I think would cause a lot of people a lot of pain because they believe that in general, stocks and bonds diversify. I think that's an accurate belief. A lot of people are, are very closely held to their, their investment beliefs, whatever they may be. Mine are very loosely held. Talk to me a little bit about, I once sat down in Ned Davis's offices in the West Coast of Florida. Is, is, it, is it on the, it's on the West Coast side? Do I remember correctly? Yeah, that's correct. Many moons ago, and I was talking to someone, I don't think it was you, but we were having a discussion and they, they said... Um, one of the books that was a big influence in the early days was Fosbach's Stock Market Logic, which most of our listeners have probably never heard of. But outside of y'all's books, what other resources have been big inspirations or do you think even currently are wonderful resources for people that want to get a little more involved in the data-driven research that you guys focus on? Anything come to mind? I think probably just as a general source would be the CMT Association which oversees the, the CMT charter market technician has quite a bit of information that you can read about. If you're interested in modeling or the journal that they produce is a good source of articles about how to use technical analysis. And actually it has evolved technical analysis that used to be thought of more of sort of drawing trend lines and making forecasts based on point and figure and so on. But it's gotten a lot more quantitative much more data-driven. Without naming a specific publication, I would say just generally, you might want to go check out the CMT Association because I think there's a lot of good information there that they have in their library and that you can draw upon. Certainly. I've been a long-time member. They have guided, not intentionally, <laughs> but my career in positive directions as well. And, and, and Tim, our guest, is a, a former Dow Award winner. What research piece was that for? I'm trying to remember. It was called the quantification predicament, which is basically, this was back in the 90s, early 90s. It was basically kind of about sort of what NDR tries to do with data as opposed to just coming up with a viewpoint based on how you think the charts look and how you're drawing a trend line and how you're interpreting the pattern is actually try to do this quantitatively in a more systematic way so that we don't deceive ourselves. To, you know, we can be more objective about in developing indicators. So that was pretty much the point of it. For someone who's been through a handful of cycles, I mean, you hit upon the data-driven approach to markets pretty early in the evolution. What's changed in Tim's worldview over the past few cycles or, or while you've been at Ned Davis? Is there anything that you look back and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe 
I used to believe that. Or you just say, hey, I've had a total change of heart and think about things quite a bit differently today than I do maybe in the years past. Well, I think other than the sort of that correlation point that I was making earlier, back in the earlier cycles, we still had that opposite correlation between stocks and bonds. And But I think that probably the one thing that I'm trying, that again, it's very difficult to, is something that you, you know, to understand what we can't quantify or what is really, and then that is things like the the influence of algo trading and and dark pools and what is not included in the data we look at, such as you, you used to be able to be pretty confident in looking at volume data, I think is an example of, of what you're asking about. NYSE volume, you could say normally volume, you know, under the old Dow theory approaches, volume leads price and you look for spikes in volume and market lows. Well, trading volume is in many ways different than it used to be. It may not capture a lot of what's really driving stock prices. So I think that's what I'm trying to understand as best I can is to what is not captured in the data that's driving stocks. And again, the, the one now, I think the big one now is the whole algo influence on trading that tends to be sort of moving a lot of things like the advanced decline line, for example, it improved so quickly earlier this year. And was that a result of, you know, a lot of these programs that were just making everything move together? Or was it really a, an actual sign that the market was broadening out? And I think as it turned out, we didn't get confirmation from other breadth indicators. So it kind of told us there was something else going on here. Maybe we should give a little bit less influence than we might otherwise, which is another example of why it's really good to look at a variety of indicators for confirmation and not put too much weight on any any one indicator because who knows if it's actually starts to go awry for some unexpected change and in, influence. I, I think that's a great point. As you look back on your career, and you can answer this one of two ways, I'll leave it up to you. We tend to ask our guests what's been their most memorable investment, good, bad, in between. Since you publish and write so much, you could also take it as your most memorable publication if you do so choose, but anything come to mind? Yeah, I'd say that the number one was in um, April 2009 when we went bullish on equity, went overweight on equities. First of all, we had been bearish in 07. And then to be able to kind of turn that around in, in April 2009, which was right after the bottom was in March 2009. Yeah, I'd say that's probably the big one. If you could pick just one, and this is going to be hard, what's, uh, what would be your favorite indicator? I think I would have to go with 200-day moving average for me, but any favorites? I can't really uh, disagree too much with that. Yeah, I mean, go with a 200-day is a good one. And I think it's actually the direction of the 200-day, which is a good one because it takes it's, it's a slow indicator and it's going to be late. But if you look at, I've talked about this earlier, markets and stocks above their moving averages, but the problem with that is you can kind of get above it and then sort of just go back and forth around it. And so you, you get a lot of a lot of noise sometimes. But yeah, I, I think the 200 day is a good one. I can't think of any other specific indicator. I mean, one, I mean, I, I've always thought you don't want to be careful about having pretty too much emphasis on any one indicator, kind of to the point I mentioned earlier that something can enter the picture. But if it's going to be an indicator, it should definitely be a price-based indicator because price is what it is. It's not going to be the price of the stock is the price of the stock, and it's not going to be 
your conclusion will be, well, over 200 days, yeah, it's going up. So it's going up. You know, it is. I like to credit you guys. It's either you or Ned or someone in your organization. And if not, I give you guys fake credit for it, but maybe even just been a quote in your book, but it said something along the lines, price is unique in that it's the only indicator that can't diverge from itself. Do you say that or do I just attribute it to you? That's something that I don't think I said that, but I, I know it's something. Market maxim. Right, right. It's 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 something Ned has said, or we kind of as a shop have sort of said. Okay. Well, I give you guys credit for it. Yeah, that's good. So to, to wrap things up, a lot of people, I think, struggle with sort of noise and indicator exhaustion, meaning like most of these advisors we talk to, or even institutions, they'll sort of latch on to whatever the indicator topic du jour is. So everyone's talking about yield curve this summer, they'll forget about it and move on to something else. What sort of advice when you're talking to these big institutions do you give them? Or if you're maybe not giving them advice, what would you give them or, or, or general takeaways on how to put this all together? So if someone's doing you know, their asset allocation and they say, look, I want to implement some of these tools and ideas. I just don't know how. How should I go about thinking about building a worldview or framework to actually put this into practice? Yeah, I mean, I think that you want to start with kind of, as I mentioned earlier, start with price-based indicators, a diversity of kinds of indicators, but also a diversity of timeframes. You don't want to have everything based on the 200-day or everything based on the 50-day. You want to have different timeframes. Look for a variety so that you can come to the conclusion. The way I often think about it is the more confirmation you have, the more conviction you can have in your view, and therefore, the more decisive you can be in your allocation. And the way to have that confirmation is to have both internal indicators that should start to give you a consistent picture if things are starting to show more conviction. And then do do that on the other side with external or non-price indicators, as I said, and then you put those together. So half internal, half non-price, half external. And then a lot of times it's going to be a very mixed kind of neutral picture. And that's what markets do a lot. They don't, sometimes you get into these trading ranges where nothing really goes anywhere. And you want to understand if that's the environment you're in, but you also want to know when you move out of that, then you should get the internals will start to give you a consistent bullish picture. And then the external or non-price factors should also tell you whether your risk is diminishing and you're in a more healthier environment. So yeah, that, that's how I would approach it. That's the way we've done it. And it's always, I think it's been a, a good process over the years for understanding where things are going. Simple answer is just use Fab Five and Big Mo. Listeners, those are, those are some of the multi-factor models. I, if I remember correctly, Ned Davis uses. Tim, it's been a lot of fun. Where do listeners follow if they want to follow all your writings, all your thoughts, what's going on? How do they, uh, how do they best follow what's, uh, what you're up to? Well, we, we have a number of services. You can go, you can start by going um, to NDR.com and that should maybe point you in the right direction. You know, for most of our, what we do is for institutional clients, we have an advisory service, which you might want to look at, but maybe start with a website. And I think that could maybe point you in the right direction. Very cool. Tim, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, thanks for joining us today. All right, Matt, enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Listeners, we'll post show note links at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. Shoot us 
questions, comments, feedback at themebfabershow.com. Leave us a review. We love to read them. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, anywhere else good podcasts are sold. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. 